when you give up that kind of boozy darkness that you've been hiding in, uh, all of your neuroses sort of jump out, waving jazz hands like, here we are. You know, it's like the lights have been flipped on in a dark room and and you, you see exactly what's in there with you. But there's a real value to that. In fact, there's great value to that because you know what you're dealing with. Leo DeSanto is a local musician. He grew up in Millersville, Pennsylvania, and still lives in Lancaster County. Before COVID-19, Leo was a frequent performer in various joints around town. About a year ago, he quit drinking and posted on Facebook about it. I stopped drinking in July of 2016, but I'm still an alcoholic, and I wanted to talk to Leo about his experience. I'd never really spoken to Leo before. To discuss something so personal with someone I hardly knew at all, and record it no less, seemed daunting and scary. On this, episode 62 of What We Will Abide, Leo DeSanto and I share our stories about fighting demons, unsuccessfully, with alcohol, and then ultimately facing them without it. Yeah, my name is Leo DeSanto. I'm a songwriter and musician. That's my full-time work or at least was before our, our current, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say apocalyptic situation, maybe pre-apocalyptic, quasi-apocalyptic, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, I write songs, I sing songs, I'm an entertainer, uh, and kind of a compulsive adventurer. I've done a lot of traveling around the world. And uh, yeah, I, I gave up drinking in December of 2018, and so I'm knocking on my uh what appears to be a real wooden desk so so far so, far, so good so far, that's great uh, congratulations thank you um do you consider yourself an alcoholic well i've always struggled with that designation but I, i'm just gonna say yes because do i have reason to believe that i was actually addicted to alcohol well i mean that's a complex question too because addiction can mean a lot of things but one definition i read from, I believe, some kind of psychologist who worked with addiction. I can't remember uh, who it was, but uh, was that addiction is uh, continuing a behavior e- even in the face of destructive and adverse consequences. And that that is an enormous understatement in my case. I mean, uh, my, my drinking was a, an absolute horror show for the better part of two decades. I mean, my, my life would read like a rock star biography only without the money and fame um but but just as insane and just as as dark uh, many times so it was a whether or not i want to use the term alcoholism is kind of academic almost it was a major major problem and and one that i didn't want to really acknowledge for a really long time until one day i just did so talk to me about the one day that you just did um was it like a a rock bottom sort of situation or did it just kind of hit you like a bolt out of the blue or was it just like a gradual thing? Yeah. Because... In- interestingly, yeah, no. interestingly, it wasn't a rock bottom scenario, although I went through 
what what you might consider to be some of those you know situations where just relationships were destroyed property was destroyed waking up in the emergency room uh you know a lot a lot of the things that would give someone pause but i i had kind of alcohol had and consuming it just wantonly had become such a hallmark of my life that when i was young i almost I almost considered it romantic and honorable. Not almost. I, I totally did consider it to be a romantic way of life. You know, I was kind of the doomed artist sort and so mentally ill or so depressed or whatever I was supposed to be that I could only really cope with it this way. And oh, you know, all all talented people are tortured and that that all that kind of nonsense that I began to doubt more and more as I got older. Uh, but it had become such a part of my identity that I don't really know. Uh, that I was clear on, on, you know, what parts of alcohol weren't me and what parts of alcohol were me. So I, I, that's, I mean, I'm kind of like, the reason I seem to be struggling with the words is because it's hard for me to understand in hindsight why it didn't occur to me sooner that you just have to stop doing this. Um, but in, two, in December, 2018, it wasn't, I wasn't at my lowest point. I had actually learned to manage it somewhat. I wasn't drinking to enormous excess all the time, but I was drinking to excess, you know, and that's kind of an occupational hazard for musicians. You go to the, the gig, a lot of them are at breweries. I love beer. Uh, I'll love it till the day I die, I'm sure, whether I ever drink one again or not. Uh, and they want to give you all the free beer that you can drink. Sometimes they even want it to be part of your payment. Um, so I was huh. still drinking to excess. You know, I might go out and I might have four or five beers in a night, which, you know, as strong as some of those craft beers are these days, that's, it's still a lot. But given the tolerance that I'd built up over the years, I, I wasn't feeling drunk. I wasn't feeling, you know, I wasn't blacking out or anything. But I just remember there was one day I was taking a walk and uh, my stomach felt bad and I was kind of just a little bit hungover, which was kind of the normal for me. It used to be kind of my baseline. I was always catching up to myself a little bit because of the drinking I'd done the night before. And I had recently learned from my brother that I was about to become an uncle. And I was thinking about that a lot. And I was thinking about a medical problem I'd, I'd had uh, due to alcohol when I, a few years back that was still kind of a threat to resurface. And I just kind of started thinking, why am I still having this fight with myself over how much is too much and when should I drink and when should I lay off and do I want my my niece or nephew to know me as it turned out to be a nephew by the way to know me as you know some some jaundiced ill uh, <laughs> husk of a husk of what used to be a vibrant human being or as a vibrant human being who's gonna you know play with them and and uh, you know ride bikes with them and stuff and and it just kind of became clear at that at that point that. I needed to walk away and I, I never told myself and I haven't still made any commitment to never touching a beer again in my life. I also haven't made a commitment that I, that I will go back to it. I just promised myself at that point one year that I wouldn't touch any for one year. It's the kind of one day at a time thing. This is um, not the first conversations I've had with someone who has said, I'm, you know, I don't know that I would use the word alcoholic to describe myself. Uh, I'm, I'm the same way. Uh, the question that I was kind of considering, and I want you to think about, is what you were looking for in the drinking, because uh, I again, like I, t- I haven't had a drink since July twenty second of two thousand sixteen, and I also didn't say that's it. I'm never having another drink ever for the rest of my life. It started off with me saying like, 
boy, this is getting out of control or has been out of control for some time. And I didn't really even think about what the major consequences had been. There were a lot of them, most of which I had denied or, or justified or just ignored or, you know, asked people, like, do you think that was bad? And they'd say, nah, it's fine. And I would just move on. Yeah, right, I only right, in yeah. retrospect began to realize what the alcoholic behavior really looked like. Uh, and that wasn't until maybe three years in when I began to like poke around on the National Institute of Health website, looking at like, what are the criteria for someone who calls themselves an alcoholic or someone who is, would be described as someone who's addicted to alcohol? And there have like, I don't know if you've ever looked at that, but um, no, there are 15 questions on that website. Um, and it says, you know, T take a gander. Look at these 15 questions. And I answered yes to, I think, 14 of the 15 or maybe all 15. Yeah. And then I read at the bottom the disclaimer, which said, if you've answered just yes to just one of these questions, <laughs> you you may have some the problems with alcohol. And I was like, okay, I guess, uh, I, I guess I was right to stop because this behavior clearly may not have been like me, like waking up in an alleyway or, you know, throwing lamps out of uh, windows. Although I have done that. But I did. I did, I did all that stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. So it wasn't that at that point at age 44, 42, I guess, or yeah, 40, 41 to 42, but I had done some of those things uh, in my life and, you know, the blacking out uh, wasn't a big part of it, but certainly like waking up the next morning and being like, what did I say? Why did I say that? Did I think that was funny at the time? Right. Regretting that kind of behavior, those kind of things, the minor things, that aren't necessarily like the, you know, destroying hotel rooms kind of thing, um, but but sort of getting there. And so, uh, you know, like I began to think, oh, wait a second, maybe those that that label does apply to me. And the longer I kind of sat with it, the more it seemed like it was OK. And I was getting to the point where I was in my life with other things, with my mental health and things like that, where I was like beginning to accept things and say, OK, instead of running away from that horrible thing, that big dumpster fire, uh, why don't you just look at it and say like, what's that about? And ask it questions. And instead of beating yourself up about it, sort of say like, well, what's this about? And I began to go back into it. Um, initially I said like, okay, this is out of hand or like maybe I should just take a break. And so it was a week. And then I thought, let's do 30 days. And I got to day 27 and I was like, ah, this is, I'm doing this standing on my head. Can I get to a hundred? You know, it's a big contest with myself. I got to day 60 and I said, okay, what's going to happen when I get to day hundred? Am I going to celebrate by getting drunk? Like, right. where is this going? And then it just became like, okay, I'm just done. You know, like yeah. I'm done. And I don't know, maybe you had this thought too, or just like you said earlier, like I love beer and I love beer to the day I die. Yeah. Um, I do too. Like I really love beer, like a lot. Yeah. And, <laughs> so, <know>. much. <laughs> so much. Since I was a and, child, you know, my dad, my dad used to give me Dixie cups of Budweiser and he wasn't a big drinker. He would drink, you know, he, all his life. So he would what drink. was the first time? How old were you when you first had your first drink? Oh, I must, I must, I mean, I must've been like nine or something. Yeah, me too. I mean, I was, and lest I, I, lest I make my dad sound like a derelict, he, he's gone now, but he, he was, he would drink half a beer and fall asleep and that beer would be a Coors Light or something. He was not a big drinker he had to water down his red wine when he had a glass of wine with dinner but he didn't, he didn't but you know it was a different time these days i don't know that i don't know i'm not a parent myself but i don't know that most parents give their kids maybe they still do i don't know but he'd give me a little dixie cup full of you know like the, a mouthwash cup on new year's eve or something of beer and i just thought it was the best tasting stuff in the mm -hmm. world and he once said to me leo it worries me how much you seem to enjoy the taste of beer and he was he was right to be worried and he lived to see that he was right to be worried i mean 
tragic, but interesting. Yeah, I, I guess the first time I was drunk, I was 11. Um, I was at a bar mitzvah. You got me uh, it was my cousin. It was my cousin's bar mitzvah uh, in uh, 1986, I think. And my parents were like, you like champagne? Go for it. Uh, <laughs> and so I downed two glasses of champagne in a matter of like 20 minutes. And then the whole room was spinning. And I was like, all right, this is different. This is new, but I, I kind of like this. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, like we would have like for Friday night dinners and they would give me a glass of wine and then we'd go out to dinner well before I was 21 and they would like sneak me a beer, sneak me a glass of wine. And then it became, as you said, like a romantic sort of thing. Like this is what you do as an adult. This is how you behave as an sure. adult. Yeah. These are the awards, the rewards that come with adulthood. Um, and so I would kind of like not just romanticize it. It turned into like, this gift, this kind of like thing to look forward to you. And I would, I would think of my, I would think of like, I'm going to go drink tonight. For me, what alcohol did was it opened those floodgates. Uh, it enabled me to feel less socially anxious. Now, this is not a thing I was aware of until after the fact, but I mean, if you look at the evidence, it's pretty strong. Like I go to parties and I'll be like, I don't want to be here. And then I'll have three beers and I'm like, I don't want to leave. Um, yeah. And, you know, my wife would drag me to parties in, in Brooklyn where we lived uh, when we first got together. And she would say, you'll love this. These people are great. And I'll be like, um, I don't like these people. I don't even like you. I don't like me. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. And um, and then she's like, just have a drink. And so I'd have a drink or two or three. And all of a sudden I was talking to some stranger about something. Who knows? And it would be like one o'clock in the morning. She'd be like, okay, it's time to go. And I'd be like, no, no, no. We have to stay longer. This is the best. For me, one of the number one things that alcohol did was it turned me into a person who liked other people. Um, because mostly I just didn't like myself. And so the alcohol made me forget about that. And it made me open to pretty much anything anybody else had to offer. Whereas I would be pretty close to those things. Otherwise, what did alcohol do for you? Well, that, that, that experience that you just described is a hundred percent a shared experience, um, from, uh, in my, in my life. And it was one of the major attractions. I've been telling people recently that I, I I've been under the impression that I was an extrovert or, or at least some sort of extrovert introvert hybrid up until the last year when I've learned that, nope, it's, I'm actually a hundred percent an introvert. I kind of want to stay inside with my dog and write songs and work on things. And I absolutely, uh, I absolutely am, I'm lifted up and, and energized by being on a stage. And the more people you can put in front of that stage, the more, the more energized I'll feel and the more excited I'll be. But the second that I step off of it, I just absolutely shrivel from a crowd. There's a, a pretty, a pretty extensive history of mental illness in my family, pretty serious mental illness. And it's been an issue and, and alcohol was like the magic potion. You yeah. get, you get just those few in you and, and all of those problems seem to just kind of melt into, in, into insignificant trifles. And yeah, you can open up and talk to people and, and be with people and, and not feel uncomfortable in a social situation. And I, I definitely think I became addicted to that in and of itself. Cause when I got off the stage, it enabled me to just, you know, be that guy who's hanging out, having a good time till 5am. And, and then when I gave that up, I realized that so much of the confident, what I thought was my self-confidence and self-esteem was really just like a drunkard's braggadocio, you know, kind of choosing to believe all of the, all of the praise that people would give me and disregard, you know, any valid criticisms or anything that I could see. And quite clearly for myself, I was making mistakes in, and uh, I thought, well, is, is anyone even going to like me anymore? You know, are girls going to want to date me? Like what's, it was, it was hard to, to extricate what was me from, from my life as a drinker when I stopped. And that, 
that really threw me into a tailspin for a while uh, when I when I first gave it up. There is this you met you alluded to this earlier, and um, one of the people I blame for having this uh, sort of fantasy image in my head is my father, who I love to death, but he has this like bizarre romantic image of like somebody like you, I think, um, a musician. Spends a lot of time on the road, spends a lot of time kind of in solitude, maybe with a dog, maybe in the woods. And like alcohol is the ever-present companion. And, you know, my dad jokes all the time about like, you know, I don't really think it's a big, like, you know, I'm going to try drinking myself to death. See how that goes. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's always joking about that. because I, think I, used, he also, I used to joke about it too. <laughs> so but he, he, he's not, he's never really been a big drinker, but he has this like romantic fantasy about what it's like to be an alcoholic, like somehow there's, there's a romance to it. Uh, I sort of, I think what you were sort of alluding to before, and then the, the, like the perfect figure of this romantic image for him is the musician. Um, somebody, somebody who, you know, who's like, you know, rolls off the stage and into a hotel room and there's like, you know, eight girls in the room with him or whatever. Yeah. And that it's a big party all the time. Um, and there's no responsibility and there's no, there's no taking account. There's no accountability. And that it's just like a big blur. And my father's like, so much of life is so miserable and so much of it's filled with so much heartache and pain that you want to blur it out. And so that life for him somehow, I don't think that he really thinks that it's a thing that he would want to do, but he kind of has this still this romantic fantasy about being like a traveling, traveling alcoholic musician. <laughs> well, having, having, having actually lived that life for many years, I can tell you that there is a romance to it. And, and that's one of the reasons that it's so seductive and, and seduces so many people, but you don't really outrun all the hobgoblins. They're still there. And in, in fact, I've found that in the aftermath of a drinking binge, you're completely vulnerable to those demons that you were trying to outrun. They come back with a vengeance. And then it's like you're, then it's like all of your internal organs have been laid bare for them to just peck at, you know, it's, it's a terrible feeling. So I've, I've, I've made enormous strides in managing my, my emotional and mental health since I gave up alcohol. It's one of the, one of the best things about it for me is that, you know, I'm, I won't say that I don't struggle. That would be a, a terrible lie to tell people. In fact, I kind of found that when you when you give up that kind of boozy darkness that you've been hiding in, uh, all of your neuroses sort of jump out, waving jazz hands like here we are. You know, it's like the lights have been flipped on in a dark room, and and you you see exactly what's in there with you. But there's a real value to that. In fact, there's great value to that because you know what you're dealing with, and it might force you to take an honest look at yourself. For the for possibly the first time, it, it kind of felt like for me because alcohol, I've learned in retrospect, uh, was a way for me to hide from the things that I that I hated about myself, and even from the fact that I hated myself. You know, mm. thinking thinking that I thought I was great because some other people thought I was great, and so therefore I must feel that way too. But I didn't, and that was an important thing to, to learn, but you know, your father's characterization isn't necessarily wrong. I mean, the alcohol intoxication is a romantic one. That's it's, it's been celebrated throughout human history ever since we know of, of having had alcoholic beverages to imbibe in the first place, you know, the whole cult of Dionysus and such it's, there is a romance to it and it's a very seductive uh, demon. I guess stepping away from, the resistance to these demons, but facing up to them, which is like a counterintuitive thing. Like you think like a bad feeling about yourself, a bad feeling about something you did. You want to run away from that. Um, and for you and I, and for 
you know, millions and millions of other people, uh, alcohol is one way that we have both attempted to, you know, literally drown that problem um, and keep it out of our heads. But as you said, and you're, you're dead right, you can't do it forever. No. You sober up, the demons are there and they're louder and they're shriller and they're scarier in those moments. And then all the other stuff, if, when you let that go and you strip that away, all that other stuff, it has to come out because it's been suppressed for so long. Um, so not only was I addicted to alcohol, but I've also been addicted to pornography. Okay. And for me, those two things, um, and I know for lots of people, they're like, you know, tandems like that. Like it might be gambling or eating or shopping or whatever. No doubt. So I have no um, judgments about those things at all. I think they all serve the same purpose. Um, and for me, these two addictions just allowed me to escape from myself. Once I gave them both up, because it took a little bit longer to give the pornography up, what I began, what began to happen was I began to have anxiety attacks. Um, I didn't realize what they were at the time, um, but I know, I know now what happened. As you described, basically I stripped away all of the numbing effects, and then all that was left was the actual feelings, which I was so unused to feeling that I began to have anxiety as a way to avoid them. And then I couldn't function and then I couldn't even do my job. And so it got to the point where I had to really face all of these things because the anxiety was so terrifying. And that was the thing that I just wanted to stop. Um, And it was this actually the same process, just turning toward it and saying, what is this? What is this about? But it was stripping away those two palliatives that really the the first step was things got worse. Um, And the demons became, as you described, louder and more in my face first but that, but I wouldn't have gotten there had I not given up the addictions first. So I, I'm right with you on the idea that like once you step away from those things, it's going to get bad first, and yeah. then slowly but surely it'll get better. I'm actually interested in your own personal. You can respond to that, or or at some point get to you know you you allude to um, new coping mechanisms. Sure. Um, we all talk about this um, new coping mechanisms for handling those feelings, which in the past you would just drown in beer. Yeah, yeah, certainly. This has been, you know, the the well. It's, I guess it's been about a year and a quarter now, and it's been one of the, you know, from from an external perspective, perhaps one of the slowest years of my life. I haven't traveled to Himalayan mountaintops or bust my way around Europe or anything like I, I've kind of been known to do in the past. Go on adventures and write about them and things. I uh, everything just slowed down and it's really just been a time of intense introspection and, and, and sorely, sorely needed for that matter. And as you suggested, as we've kind of both, uh, both felt uh, it, it got harder before it got easier. At first, I just doubted everything about myself. It was a crisis of confidence. It was one of the loneliest years of my life. I was just spending a lot of time alone at home, uh, meditating and, and thinking and trying to work and, you know, in my life as a drinker and uh, you know, we've already talked about the social aspect of it, but it, it kind of meant for me that I was around people far more often. Cause I'd just be out after the gig, after a show, hanging out with whoever was there and very often, uh, you know, going home with, uh, you know, a number of different women who, you know, I, I may or may not have known, uh, too well, or, or people that I may or may not have hung out with. Otherwise, I don't know. Uh, I'd like to think I still made some pretty good choices, but, but that, that all kind of, that all kind of vanished. Um, my social life kind of just 
came to a screeching halt almost, you know, I'd still go out and visit friends occasionally, uh, go to parties, but I became a lot more intentional about, about spending time with people. And, and as somebody who's somewhat socially anxious, it became more difficult for me to allow people into my life in, in intimate ways. Uh, and I kind of chose to, although that wasn't necessarily comfortable, I chose to respect that about the way things were going. Um, and kind of develop these coping mechanisms, one of which is to just be, and this was, this was an enormous release and relief to me, just to be able to, to say, you know, to be able to, to, to be able to be honest about it when I thought I really like fucked something up, you know, like, I, mm-hmm. I, like, Hey, I, I, I actually am a highly fallible human. And I, and I never realized that I was resistant to that idea. Cause I liked, I've always liked to poke fun at myself and I've always had a fairly self-deprecating sense of humor, but I realized that I, I wasn't really accepting the fact that I've made some really major mistakes. And, mm-hmm. and when, when I stepped back from drinking and, and, and realized, and I can't even tell you how, how incredible my life looks to me now from stand, standing where I'm standing, it's just kind of like, oh my God, that was so dark and crazy. How did I survive that? Mm-hmm. Because I never really thought I would, and I never really wanted to. You know, When I was younger, I always assumed that I wouldn't make it to 30. I was going to be one of those guys. All my heroes were kind of, most of my heroes were kind of dark, intense, creative people that didn't live past 27 or whatever, you know, uh, writers and artists. And uh, well, you know, in my younger days, I really admired people like Jim Morrison. I still admire Jim Morrison and, you know, Dylan Thomas and Towns Van Zandt and Hank Williams, guys like that, that, that just uh, burned out very quickly. And I just kind of imagine that that's what what fate had in store for me. It just seemed to be the way my life was going and I was okay with it. When I made it to 30, I was somewhat surprised and 40 even more so uh, <laughs> to, to find myself in that position and to find that my my perspective on these things was, was changing uh, and that I no longer viewed that kind of tortured, you know, that kind of tortured fuck up character as being the most romantic thing I could imagine. And, and, you know, these were some of the changes that led to me eventually being able to walk away from it, I think. But being able to admit that I didn't need to, you know, necessarily be the best at things, that I didn't necessarily need to be right, that I mm. that I could legitimately just say, hey, I really got that one wrong. Um, being able to admit fallibility and accept that, you know, I, I don't need to make excuses for why I'm not rich and famous and successful. I don't need to to be bitter towards other people who might be doing better in some regards than I am. Uh, that was an enormous uh, weight to unload. Yeah. And meditation has played, you, you mentioned coping mecha- mechanisms. This is the year that I finally have been able to establish like a regular daily meditation practice, which I've been trying to do in fits and starts for many years. And Same that here. that has been, uh, that has made a, a world of difference in being able to look clearly at my own thoughts and emotions and, 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 uh, accept them for what they are rather than trying to convince myself that they're otherwise. Yeah. People think meditation when you first, I mean, it's more in vogue these days, but people think meditation is like clearing your mind, no. uh, having some kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah, transcendent experience. And, and like, I, I think maybe I, I was, I was influenced by that, uh, cockamamie idea as well. Um, we, we, I think we all are at some point yeah, in our yeah, yeah. journey but there. You, the way you described it is perfect because it's just like, no, you just look at your thoughts and accept them for what they are. You're that's, watching. Yeah. You're watching what arises. That's kind of it. You're watching what arises and not judging it. Trying not to um, judge it. Yeah. Do you, 
attend any meetings? I never have. I haven't been to one. Um, and some people have reached out to me who have had great successes in their life going that route. And I, I just don't feel drawn to it at all. Um, Why not? I wouldn't want to go criticizing something that helps a lot of people and that I don't really have any firsthand knowledge about. I've known some people who definitely believe that they would be dead if it weren't for programs mm -hmm. like Alcoholics Anonymous and such. Maybe mm -hmm. it's because I'm more of a loner. Maybe it's because I feel like I have a really, uh, a really supportive group of people that I could reach out to if I needed to. Mm -hmm. I, I won't claim that I didn't need a helping hand. Uh, the day that I decided to quit drinking, it was in December of 2018. It was just so, it felt so terrifying and lonely to me that I actually made a Facebook post, which was before this, it was uncharacteristic of me to share anything personal on Facebook. I was, I was very, very much uh, opposed to doing that. But I made a post that just said something kind of vague, like, is there anyone out there who would be willing to share their experiences about giving up alcohol with me? And it was the responses that I got both in that comment thread and more so in private messages that that gave me the courage to make the leap. I don't know that I would have been able to do it, which is why I've been vocal about it. Why, why you know, I'm willing to have conversations like this, why I'm willing to post on Facebook about the anniversary of my you know, of my, my quitting day, because I feel like I needed somebody to reach a hand across what looked like a dark and scary and, and unleapable chasm that was in front of me and kind of grab my hand and pull me. And I feel like if I, if I can maybe do that for anyone else, uh, I'd like to put it out there. Besides, we could all stand to get over ourselves a little bit and be a little bit more vulnerable and open with each other, I think, you know? So I, I also, so I, when I first began to like come to terms with this whole, you know, and the label, like you're right, it, it actually doesn't mean anything. Um, but it, it, it kind of helps to, to, to contextualize, especially for, for other people. Although people have a very specific idea of what an alcoholic is. And they imagine like, you know, a stumble bum. I thought of the AA thing, for example, as not for me. Um, and I couldn't put my finger on why. Um, and um, maybe it was some of the things that you mentioned, like the concept of my, of being kind of a loner. Um, and also this perennial idea that I have that I don't need any help and that if I can't do it by myself, then there's some, you know, then that's like a weakness. Right. Um, and that's something I've sort of started because that's an idea that's strong and, and in, in, ingrained in me, I figure, well, what's that about? And I've tried to kind of like tear that apart. And so I attended a couple of AA meetings, um, a few months ago, um, with a friend who's been sober for 30 years. And, um, I, 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 you know, I felt like a part of the reason I didn't go because I thought like I'm going to be an impo I'm an imposter. Um, I'm not a fall down drunk. I'm not somebody who is uh, who's as you said whose life has hit rock bottom. Um, like you didn't hit that point. Neither did I. Um, well, so I, I'm, I feel like I kind of did a few times, but I, I, I guess okay. it wasn't. I guess I didn't lose everything, or else I would. Right. You know. So like it's only people who lose right. It's only people who lose everything who who wind up you know in this, uh, you know, church meeting room on a Tuesday afternoon at 12 o'clock, smoking cigarettes and eating muffins. Right. Like that's just not who I am. Um, and, um, because I had that preconceived notion, I thought, well, this is the time when you're going to, when you're challenging all those assumptions, you might as well go. So I did. And the first one, I did very much feel like an imposter. There were a lot of people in the room, a lot of people who had some stories who were really tragic. Um, and a few times I was moved to say something, but I thought like, 
it's just going to come out hollow. Like clearly, like I'm a privileged person. Like look at the way I'm dressed, whatever. Like, you know, I was too caught up in what people would think of me. The second time I went, it was a smaller group and um, I was compelled to speak almost immediately because people were telling their stories and they're pretty serious horror stories in that room. And I told a story just about like, um, how, uh, you know, I've been, you know, been sober for, for three years, but that it, it, like the, the stuff that I'm, I'm struggling with that alcohol quote unquote helped me with, which it never really did. That's the lie. Um, is still there. And, and that, you know, I was dealing with anxiety and my daughter's anxiety. And there was a, a young woman in the room who had just gotten out of rehab. Um, and I think that she was addicted to alcohol and to drugs. Um, and she was, in a bad, bad, bad way. Like her story was really dark and she spoke and then, or maybe she came in a bit later and she heard, she heard me speak and she was moved by my boring story about, you know, anxiety, which is like, you know, par for the course, like who cares about that? Where she's like, you know, living out of cars and dodging bullets and things like that. And she's, she, in her, when, when she tells her story is like refers to me and says like, that moved me like the story that you told and that you, these are the things that you deal with. And so it was her reaction to me. That was the most moving where I was like, Oh, wait a second. There actually is something to this because Alcoholics Anonymous has nothing to do with drinking. It has everything to do with what we think of ourselves, uh, which is, you know, we think of ourselves as, as being pieces of shit. All of us have that in common and we all have dealt with it in our own particular way. And everybody is expressing that. And so the the sense that there are more people in a room who feel the same way I did and are moved by it, that was really poignant for me. And and just to having those experiences, yes, A, seeing how much worse everybody else had it than I did, but also connecting to their experiences, even though they may have taken them down to a, a lower level of hell than I'd been in, there was, there was camaraderie there. There was connection there. Um, and that to me, like, brought it home. Like this actually is a place for you. And I felt like I haven't been back, but I could go back and that there's something in it for me there as well. Yeah. There, and there may be, you know, that, uh, there, it's entirely possible that I would find that to be the case as well. I just haven't been drawn to it. And perhaps it's just kind of the contrary in me. I don't really like to, I went on a few dates with a girl that was in AA a number of years back and she described, it sounded very involved. The whole, the, it sounded like there was quite a protocol and I, and I don't really like running through other people's methodologies very often. You know, it's does the God thing bug you? Yeah, a little bit. It does. Not necessarily though, because I I'm not I'm not like a spiritual by by any means. I guess not knowing what angle they were going to take on that kind of bothers me. Anything that I, I'm a little bit allergic to, anything that seems like anyone preaching to me. Uh, religiously for years I was trying to cut down you know I was trying I, I, I think I was kind of suffering the delusion that it was within my ability to just you know slow down the train just apply some brakes and slow it down to a manageable you know well if I can just get to the point where I'm having a couple a night then that's all good and fine and I might go weeks where I was doing that but mm-hmm. but it's it, it you know it, it's still kind of right that little devil's still riding on your shoulder and it can go off the rails at any time and that's when I realized that it it wasn't if I was ever going to be able to have that kind of a relationship with alcohol, it was, I was going to have to walk away from it for a long time. Yeah. I, yeah. And that's not true for everyone. Um, no, it's not. Some people can say, you know, they can really cut down and they can say like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to um, regulate my relationship with this. For me, uh, it wasn't so much, you know, like quantity or um, uh, 
I would say like frequency. Um, it was the fact that I would think about it. I'd find myself thinking about a thing like I'm, I'm going to, you know, it's Tuesday right now. I can't wait till Friday so I can get really drunk. No, no, <laughs> I, I, I absolutely identify with that. That was what finally put me over the edge was just, the, I was like, why am I still having this fight with myself? You know, like, Hey, I had a drink on Monday. I can, I don't, right. I don't want to drink every day. So today's Tuesday. Right. Can I drink? No, I can't. Tomorrow I can have two. Right. How many did I have yeah. on Monday? And I just, I was like, right. why am I still doing this? You know, such a mental gymnastics. It really is. And that's, that's one of the reasons I haven't reintroduced it into my life. Cause I thought it entirely possible that a year would pass and it would be Christmas time. And I'd be like, all right, now I can have a, a glass of yeah. wine with my family at Christmas dinner. Right. Then it's like, okay, I had one. Is it okay to have another one? And I instantly that whole quandary would be right. You know, that whole, that whole problem would have come right back into existence. Whereas now I never have to worry whether I'm going to be able to get myself home after a show or right. from an outing legally, right. you know, legally and safely. I never have to wake up worrying about what I said, because if I said something, right. then I just own it. You know, it might've been a dumb thing to yes. say, Lord knows I still say plenty of dumb things, but at least, <laughs> but at least it's me saying them instead of like some dark ghost driver who, you know, <laughs> had, had control <laughs> of my brain for a little while. It, it doesn't seem, seem like you know it doesn't seem like you oftentimes when you're in those experiences and i had girlfriends would say to me they would speak fearfully of this look that would come into my eyes when i passed a certain oh, point no. and they would know that i was gone because you know the people that suffered the most from this unfortunately were were very you know this my serious relationships who were living with me at the time and i was never i was right. never physically abusive or anything like that but certainly verbally abusive and, and just not mm -hmm. pleasant to be around and you know mm -hmm. a concern for my own safety and well-being do you want to play a song? Yeah, I, I actually wrote a song about about kind of about my life as a drinker and my life now. Uh, very recently, it's a, a couple of weeks old, um, and uh, it's a song called it's a song called non alcoholic beer. As when I was going to ask you about that, you drink a non alcoholic beer. Yeah. Why? Why? Well, it it really kind of scratches the itch, and and I honestly feel like it's helped me not backslide into drinking real beer. And with that, without it, I might have, because I, I really love the taste of beer. I really do. And I also uh, have wired myself through so much, you know, classical operant conditioning over the years to, to crave that reward when I've, when I've, you know, at the end of the day, if I've done some work, yeah. even if I haven't done some work ever, just to want that kind of special beverage or even more so when I'm out at bars, uh, which I am so well, at least until last week was so frequently for work. Uh, right. Just having that special <laughs> beverage, so it, it 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 lets me still have something that tastes mostly like beer, and uh, it, it it the feeling of drinking something special and kind of participating in the social gathering because it's you know I don't know if you noticed this as much as I did, but it's it's socially very weird when you don't drink, and not just because you have social anxiety, but because there's like this disconnect between you and all the people that have a bottle in their hand, just because you're not, yeah. just because you're not drinking. And if you're drinking a water or a, or a seltzer or something, it's not quite the same. Um, I find that people ask me all the time, like, do you want something to, do you, you know, do you want something to drink? Yeah. They think like, something's wrong. If you don't, <laughs> right. are you okay? You're feeling okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize how much of a, uh, how, you know, how prevalent it really is. It just, it's like everybody, you know, absolutely everybody does it. And when you stop, it's like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> Why aren't you doing this thing that, and I remember like some of my friends who didn't drink and I'd be like, when I was drinking, I'd say to them, no, you have to, you can't, no, you can't oh, yeah. sit there I, and not I drink. I was one of those guys. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I've had people, um, also who are you know pretty vigilant and, um, in a really kind of upsetting way, um, beating me like, you know, 
you need to you need to drink with us like you, you can't just sit there with nothing in your hand and i'll be like well that's really sort of insensitive and unkind of you. oh yeah i mean you uh, know when you're the musician too like people just want you to be that wild drunk i think there are some people who loved that loved my antics i mean i'd show up I'd show up at a, a party or something I was hired to play and they'd have a, a fifth of my favorite bourbon sitting on the monitor speaker for me. You know, mm-hmm. they, so it's really hard for people to grasp. But uh, honestly, I, I've been surprised by how cool people have been to me about it. And maybe it's because they realized that I had serious issues and that the, that the need was real. <laughs> but people haven't really, nobody has really pressured me to drink. And I, and I appreciate that. And I've said to my friends, you know, look, look, I'm, I genuinely am sorry if you miss your drinking buddy but I hated that fucking guy. <laughs> you know, I really, I really hated that yeah. guy and I don't want, I yeah. don't want him back. So yeah, this song ended, uh, was intended to be kind of a lighthearted barroom drinking song about non-alcoholic beer. I thought I could use some more fun <laughs> stuff in my set and it actually ended up being way more brutally honest about my life as a drinker and, and my life now than I thought it would be. But, uh, okay. but so be it, you know, our job is to communicate. Yeah. So this is called non-alcoholic beer. I put down the bottle, been just about a year. Lately, I've been drinking on some of that non-alcoholic beer. Every time some goon at some local saloon comes round to make a thing, ask me what I'm drinking, I lift my glass and sing, Here's mud in your eye, buddy of mine, let's go down, go down to the well. Might never get to heaven, man, but we'll sure dry out in hell. Well, it won't get you drunk and it don't get you laid. What it'll get you ain't precisely clear. But you won't get jailed and your liver won't fail. Cause a non-alcoholic beer. You play rock star boy making all that noise just to hit yourself to sleep. On a greasy spot in a parking lot, praying the devil your soul to keep. Well, you're halfway to hell and you're starting to smell police screaming in your ear. And the whole world sucks and you wish you'd have stuck to some non-alcoholic beer. Here's mud in your eye, buddy of mine, let's go down, go down to the well. We might never get to heaven, man, but we'll sure dry out in hell. Well, it won't get you drunk and it don't get you laid. Well, it'll get you ain't precisely clear. But you won't wake up and find everything's fucked with a non-alcoholic beer. Oh, you're late, well, sure ain't gonna make me handsome, and it sure ain't gonna make you pretty. And I probably won't go home with you, and I won't get to touch you. I mean, I swear I don't get around the way I used to do, I fear. But my hands don't shake and my teeth don't break, cause I'm not alcoholic beer. Here's mud in your eye, buddy of mine, let's go down, go down to the well. We might never get to heaven, man, but we'll sure dry out in hell. Well, it won't get you drunk and it don't get you late, but it'll get you ain't precisely clear. But you won't get jailed and your liver won't fail, cause a non-alcoholic beer. No, you won't wake up and find everything's fucked with a non-alcoholic beer. Kinda tastes like shit, but you warm up to hit that non. Talking about that non. 
Yes, sir. Thank you, Sam. I can't let you go without asking you to plug yourself. All right. Um, so go for it. Where can people find your stuff and what the, what should they be looking for? Yeah, well, I have a website called leodesanto.com that's a pretty easy place to start that connects to most of my social media. There's videos there. I've been real into making my own music videos lately. I'm a novice at it, but I, I'm really enjoying it. And I get a little better with each one, um, upgrading equipment and things. Um, Facebook Leo DeSanto music page is a big one now. Cause that's where I'm airing at least for now, all my live stream concerts. I've got a little studio. I, I changed my, my home studio to a, a live stream set up with uh, lighting and camera and audio equipment and everything. So I'm doing a few concerts a week now that people can, uh, you know, make donations if they want to, or they, if they're, if they're not able, they can just enjoy for free. Uh, so those are probably the best places, leodesanto.com. And uh, I've got a band called Vinegar Creek Constituency, if you want to look that up. It's kind of a folky, twangalangy original band that I've been playing in for a number of years now. It's been cool in some really surprising ways. I mean, during this weird time that we're all in, people are really kind of yearning for connection. And the feeling of kind of connecting with the audience and interacting in those live stream shows is it really, there's something there, you know, it seems to it seems to go pretty deep. I was talking to a, a newspaper writer about that earlier. She's working on an article about the ways that people are supporting each other during this time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm hoping to expand my broadcast to support other people too. I want to pull in videos and clips from other musicians and to whatever extent I'm able, given limited contact, even do some streams for some other people. We might be on the cusp of a whole new way of... Um, sharing entertainment or, you know, sharing like maybe things that are actually a bit more meaningful than just your standard sort of pop songs and, and those kind of things. I'm wondering if like there's half of me is thinking like, well, this is, you know, the collapse of civilization, which I'm not against, um, but it's all going to be bad, bad, bad. And the other half of me is thinking like, wait, maybe this is the thing that actually wakes people up and recognizes that it's connections with other human beings that matter the most. I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm cycling through the, the very similar scenarios in my head, but you know, from doomsday scenarios to like scenarios where we kind of wake up a little bit in some way and realize how much we needed each other all along and how, how, how yeah. none of us were ever really doing anything by ourselves. Like the, the people that are earning billions of dollars aren't doing that by themselves. They're all the people, all the people that are, all the people that are, you know, under them are, are doing it. And, and, when those people start going away, we're going you know, the, like the billionaires are fine, but the stock market's still tanking and the economy is still being ruined. Guess why? You know, so I'm fascinated by the possibility of major paradigm shifting. And I'm not going to say I'm like jumping up and down gleefully about what's happening now. Obviously I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm one of the people who's, who, who lost all of their, you know, all of their income. Although, right. although my, although people have been really supportive of me online and I really, really appreciate it. Um, people are really thinking about supporting their, the, the artists that, that matters to them now. But I, I am just fascinated to see where, where it's all going to go. And I don't even want to say how we come out the other end because it might not, there might not, we might not come out the other end. You know, we, we might be on the way to a new, a new thing entirely. So Leo, maybe, maybe it, it it's about um, community and people helping each other after all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think, I really think it is. What a crazy idea. Exactly. Right? Who, who knew, who knew that's where we'd land a, 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 a social cooperative species that started out in small cooperative foraging bands. Silver.
Nora, Sam Schindler's daughter. All original music for the episode is by Leo DeSanto. Leo is still playing live on the internet as we muddle through a global pandemic. Yeah, a global pandemic. But I imagine that one day he'll be back on stage before a live audience. Thanks for listening, everybody. Still, the moon, a silver dime.